0: Second Division, The History of the Moral Sentiments, Part 2 of Human All Too Human, a Book for Free Spirits, by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Helen Zimmern, 1846-1934. to This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Aaron Rivera. Second Division, The History of the Moral Sentiments, Part 2. 69. Love and Justice. Why do we overestimate love to the disadvantage of justice, and say the most beautiful things about it, as if it were something very much higher than the latter? Is it not visibly more stupid than justice? Certainly, but precisely for that reason all the pleasanter for everyone. It is blind, and possesses an abundant cornucopia, out of which it distributes its gifts to all, even if they do not deserve them, even if they express no thanks for them. It is as impartial as the rain, which, according to the Bible and experience, makes not only the unjust, but also occasionally the just wet through the skin. 70. Execution How is it that every execution offends us more than does a murder? It is the coldness of the judges, the painful preparations, the conviction that a human being is here being used as a warning to scare others for the guilt is not punished even if it existed it lies with educators parents surroundings in ourselves not in the murderer i mean the determining circumstances Seventy-one, hope pandora brought the box of ills and opened it it was the gift of the gods to men outwardly a beautiful and seductive gift and called the casket of happiness out of it flew all the evils living winged creatures thence they now circulate and do men injury day and night one single evil had not yet escaped from the box and by the will of zeus pandora closed the lid and it remained within now for ever man has the casket of happiness in his house and thinks he holds a great treasure it is at his disposal he stretches out his hand for it whenever he desires For he does not know the box which Pandora brought was the casket of evil, and he believes the ill which remains within to be the greatest blessing. It is hope. Zeus did not wish man, however much he might be tormented by the other evils, to fling away his life, but to go on letting himself be tormented again and again. Therefore he gives man hope. In reality, it is the worst of all evils, because it prolongs the torments of man. 72 the degree of moral inflammability unknown according to whether we have or have not had certain disturbing views and impressions for instance an unjustly executed killed or martyred father a faithless wife a cruel hostile attack it depends whether our passions reach fever heat and influence our whole life or not no one knows to what he may be driven by circumstances pity or indignation he does not know the degree of his own inflammability miserable little circumstances make us miserable it is generally not the quantity of experiences but their quality on which lower and higher man depends in good and evil seventy three the martyr in spite of himself there was a man belonging to a party who was too nervous and cowardly ever to contradict his comrades they made use of him for everything They demanded everything from him because he was more afraid of the bad opinion of his companions than of death itself his was a miserable feeble soul they recognized this and on the ground of these qualities they made a hero of him and finally even a martyr although the coward inwardly always said no with his lips he always said yes even on the scaffold when he was about to die for the opinions of his party for beside him stood one of his old companions who so tyrannized over him by word and look that he really suffered death in the most respectable manner, and has ever since been celebrated as a martyr and a great character. 74. I, the Everyday Standard One will seldom go wrong if one attributes extreme actions to vanity, average ones to habit, and petty ones to fear. 75. Misunderstanding Concerning Virtue whoever has known immorality in connection with pleasure as is the case with a man who has a pleasure-seeking youth behind him imagines that virtue must be connected with absence of pleasure whoever on the contrary has been much plagued by his passions and vices longs to find in virtue peace and the soul's happiness hence it is possible for two virtuous persons not to understand each other at all Seventy-six, the ascetic the ascetic makes a necessity of virtue 77. Transferring honor from the person to the thing Deeds of love and sacrifice for the benefit of one's neighbor are generally honored, wherever they are manifested. Thereby we multiply the valuation of things which are thus loved, or for which we sacrifice ourselves, although perhaps they are not worth much in themselves. A brave army is convinced of the cause for which it fights. 78. Ambition, a substitute for the moral sense. The moral sense must not be lacking in those natures which have no ambition. The ambitious manage without it, with almost the same results. For this reason the sons of unpretentious, unambitious families, when once they lose the moral sense, generally degenerate very quickly into complete scamps. 79. Vanity in Riches. How poor would be the human mind without vanity! Thus, however, it resembles a well-stocked and constantly replenished bazaar which attracts buyers of every kind. There they can find almost everything, obtain almost everything, provided that they bring the right sort of coin, namely, admiration. 80. Old Age and Death Apart from the commands of religion, the question may well be asked. Why is it more worthy for an old man who feels his powers decline, to await his slow exhaustion and extinction, than with full consciousness to set a limit to his life? Suicide, in this case, is a perfectly natural, obvious action, which should justly arouse respect as a triumph of reason, and did arouse it in those times when the heads of Greek philosophy and the sturdiest patriots used to seek death through suicide. The seeking, on the contrary, To prolong existence from day to day, with anxious consultation of doctors and a painful mode of living, without the power of drawing near to the actual aim of life, is far less worthy. Religion is rich in excuses to reply to the demand for suicide, and thus it ingratiates itself with those who wish to cling to life. 81. errors of the Sufferer and the Doer When a rich man deprives a poor man of a possession, for instance a prince taking the sweetheart of a plebeian an error arises in the mind of the poor man he thinks that the rich man must be utterly infamous to take away from him the little that he has but the rich man does not estimate so highly the value of a single possession because he is accustomed to have many hence he cannot imagine himself in the poor man's place and does not commit nearly so great a wrong as the latter supposes they each have a mistaken idea of the other the injustice of the powerful which more than anything else rouses indignation in history is by no means so great as it appears alone the mere inherited consciousness of being a higher creation with higher claims produces a cold temperament and leaves the conscience quiet we all of us feel no injustice when the difference is very great between ourselves and another creature and kill a fly for instance without any pricks of conscience therefore it was no sign of badness in xerxes whom even all greeks describe as superlatively noble when he took away a son from his father and had him cut in pieces because he had expressed a nervous ominous distrust of the whole campaign in this case the individual is put out of the way like an unpleasant insect he is too lowly to be allowed any longer to cause annoyance to a ruler of the world yes every cruel man is not so cruel as the ill-treated one imagines the idea of pain is not the same as its endurance It is the same thing in the case of unjust judges, of the journalist who leads public opinion astray by small dishonesties. In all these cases, cause and effect are surrounded by entirely different groups of feelings and thoughts. Yet one unconsciously takes it for granted that doer and sufferer think and feel alike, and according to this supposition we measure the guilt of the one by the pain of the other. 82. THE SKIN OF THE SOUL As the bones, flesh, entrails, and blood vessels are enclosed within a skin, which makes the aspect of man endurable, so the emotions and passions of the soul are enwrapped with vanity. It is the skin of the soul. 83. The Sleep of Virtue When virtue has slept, it will arise again all the fresher. 84. The Refinement of Shame people are not ashamed to think something foul but they are shamed when they think these foul things are attributed to them 85 malice is rare most people are far too much occupied with themselves to be malicious 86 the tongue in the balance we praise or blame according as the one or other affords more opportunity for exhibiting our power of judgment eighty seven saint luke the eighteenth fourteen improved he that humbleth himself wishes to be exalted eighty eight the prevention of suicide there is a certain right by which we may deprive a man of life but none by which we may deprive him of death this is mere cruelty eighty nine vanity we care for the good opinion of men firstly because they are useful to us and then because we wish to please them children their parents pupils their teachers and well-meaning people generally their fellow-men only where the good opinion of men is of importance to some one apart from the advantage thereof or his wish to please can we speak of vanity in this case the man wishes to please himself but at the expense of his fellow-men either by misleading them into holding a false opinion about him or by aiming at a degree of good opinion which must be painful to everyone else by arousing envy the individual usually wishes to corroborate the opinion he holds of himself by the opinion of others and to strengthen it in his own eyes but the strong habit of authority a habit as old as man himself induces many to support by authority their belief in themselves that is to say they accept it first from others they trust the judgment of others more than their own the interest in himself the wish to please himself, attains to such a height in a vain man that he misleads others by having a false, all-too-elevated estimation of him, and yet nevertheless sets store by their authority, thus causing an error and yet believing in it. It must be confessed, therefore, that vain people do not wish to please others so much as themselves, and that they go so far therein as to neglect their advantage. For they often endeavor to prejudice their fellow man unfavorably, inamicably, enviously, Consequently, injuriously against themselves, merely in order to have pleasure in themselves, personal pleasure. 90. The Limits of Human Love. A man who has declared that another is an idiot and a bad companion is angry when the latter eventually proves himself to be otherwise. 91. Moralite l'armoyante. What a great deal of pleasure morality gives! Only think what a sea of pleasant tears has been shed over descriptions of noble and unselfish deeds. This charm of life would vanish if the belief in absolute irresponsibility were to obtain supremacy. 92. The Origin of Justice. Justice, equity, has its origin amongst powers which are fairly equal, as Thucydides, in the terrible dialogue between the Athenian and Milanian ambassadors, rightly comprehended, that is to say where there is no clearly recognizable supremacy and where a conflict would be useless and would injure both sides there arises the thought of coming to an understanding and settling the opposing claims the character of exchange is the primary character of justice each party satisfies the other as each obtains what he values more than the other each one receives that which he desires as his own henceforth and whatever is desired is received in return Justice, therefore, is recompense and exchange based on the hypothesis of a fairly equal degree of power. Thus, originally, revenge belongs to the province of justice. It is an exchange, also gratitude. Justice naturally is based on the point of view of a judicious self-preservation, on the egoism, therefore, of that reflection. Why should I injure myself uselessly and perhaps not attain my aim after all? So much about the origin of justice." Because man, according to his intellectual custom, has forgotten the original purpose of so-called just and reasonable actions, and particularly because for hundreds of years children have been taught to admire and imitate such actions, the idea has gradually arisen that such an action is unegoistic. Upon this idea, however, is based the high estimation in which it is held, which, moreover, like all valuations, is constantly growing, for something that is valued highly is striven after imitated, multiplied, and increases, because the value of the output of the toil and enthusiasm of each individual is added to the value of the thing itself. How little moral would the world look without this forgetfulness? A poet might say that God has placed forgetfulness as doorkeeper in the temple of human dignity. 93. The Right of the Weaker When anyone submits under certain conditions to a greater power, as a besieged town for instance, the counter-condition is that one can destroy oneself, burn the town, and so cause the Mighty One a great loss. Therefore there is a kind of equalization here, on the basis of which rights may be determined. The enemy has his advantage in maintaining it. In so far, there are also rights between slaves and masters, that is, precisely so far as the possession of the slave is useful and important to his master. The right originally extends so far as one appears to be valuable to the other essentially unlosable unconquerable and so forth in so far the weaker one also has rights but lesser ones hence the famous unusquice tantum juris habet quantum potentia valet or more exactly quantum potentia valere creditur 94. the three phases of hitherto existing morality It is the first sign that the animal has become man, when its actions no longer have regard only to momentary welfare, but to what is enduring, when it grows useful and practical. There the free rule of reason first breaks out. A still higher step is reached when he acts according to the principle of honor, by this means he brings himself into order, submits to common feelings, and that exalts him still higher over the phase in which he was led only by the idea of usefulness from a personal point of view. He respects and wishes to be respected, i.e. he understands usefulness as dependent upon what he thinks of others and what others think of him. Eventually, he acts on the highest step of the hitherto existing morality, according to his standard of things and men. He himself decides for himself and others what is honorable, what is useful. He has become the lawgiver of opinions, in accordance with the ever more highly developed idea of what is useful and honorable. Knowledge enables him to place that which is most useful— that is to say, the general, enduring usefulness, above the personal, the honorable recognition of general, enduring usefulness, above the personal, the honorable recognition of general, enduring validity, above the momentary. He lives and acts as a collective individual. 95. THE MORALITY OF THE MATURE INDIVIDUAL The impersonal has hitherto been looked upon as the actual distinguishing mark of moral actions, and has been pointed out that in the beginning it was in consideration of the common good that all impersonal actions were praised and distinguished. It is not an important change in these views impending, now when it is more and more recognized that it is precisely in the most personal possible considerations that the common good is the greatest, so that a strictly personal action now best illustrates the present idea of morality as utility for the mass? To make a whole personality out of ourselves, and in all that we do to keep that personality's highest good in view, carries us further than those sympathetic emotions and actions for the benefit of others. We all still suffer, certainly, from the too small consideration of the personal in us. It is badly developed. Let us admit it. Rather, has our mind been forcibly drawn away from it and offered as a sacrifice to the state, to science, or to those who stand in need of help, as if it were the bad part which must be sacrificed? We are still willing to work for our fellow men, but only so far as we find our own greatest advantage in this work, no more and no less. It is only a question of what we understand as our advantage. The unripe, undeveloped, crude individual will understand it in the crudest way. 96. Custom and Morality To be moral, correct, and virtuous is to be obedient to an old-established law and custom whether we submit with difficulty or willingly is immaterial, enough that we do so. He is called good, who, as if naturally, after long precedent, easily and willingly, therefore, does what is right, according to whatever this may be, as, for instance, taking revenge, if to take revenge be considered as right as amongst the ancient Greeks. He is called good because he is good for something, but as good will... Piety, consideration, moderation, and such like, have come, with the change in manners, to be looked upon as good for something, as useful. The good-natured and helpful have, later on, come to be distinguished specially as good. In the beginning, other and more important kinds of usefulness stood in the foreground. To be evil is to be not moral, immoral. To be immoral is to be in opposition to tradition, however sensible or stupid it may be injury to the community the neighbour being understood thereby has however been looked upon by the social laws of all different ages as being eminently the actual immorality so that now at the word evil we immediately think of voluntary injury to one's neighbour the fundamental antithesis which has taught man the distinction between moral and immoral between good and evil is not the egoistic and unegoistic but the being bound to the tradition law and solution thereof how the tradition has arisen is immaterial at all events without regard to good and evil or any imminent categorical imperative but above all for the purpose of preserving a community a generation an association a people every superstitious custom that has arisen on account of some falsely explained accident creates a tradition which it is moral to follow to separate oneself from it is dangerous but more dangerous for the community than for the individual because the Godhead punishes the community for every outrage and every violation of its rights, and the individual only in proportion. Now every tradition grows continually more venerable. The farther off lies its origin, the more this is lost sight of. The veneration paid it accumulates from generation to generation. The tradition at last becomes holy and excites awe. And thus, in any case, the morality of piety is a much older morality than that which requires unegoistic actions. 97. Pleasure in traditional custom. An important species of pleasure, and therewith the source of morality, arises out of habit. Man does what is habitual to him more easily, better, and therefore more willingly. He feels a pleasure therein, and knows from experience that the habitual has been tested, and is therefore useful. A custom that we can live with is proved to be wholesome and advantageous in contrast to all new and not yet tested experiments." According to this, morality is the union of the pleasant and the useful. Moreover, it requires no reflection. As soon as man can use compulsion, he uses it to introduce and enforce his customs, for in his eyes they are proved as the wisdom of life. In the same way a company of individuals compels each single one to adopt the same customs. Here the inference is wrong, because we feel at ease with the morality, or at least because we are able to carry on existence with it. Therefore this morality is necessary, For it seems to be the only possibility of feeling at ease. The ease of life seems to grow out of it alone. This comprehension of the habitual as a necessity of existence is pursued even to the smallest details of custom. As insight into genuine causality is very small with lower peoples and civilizations, they take precautions with superstitious fear that everything should go in its same groove. Even where custom is difficult, hard, and burdensome, it is preserved on account of its apparent highest usefulness. It is not known that the same degree of well-being can also exist with other customs, and that even higher degrees may be attained. We become aware, however, that all customs, even the hardest, grow pleasanter and milder with time, and that the severest way of life may become a habit, and therefore a pleasure. 98. Pleasure and Social Instinct. Out of his relations with other men, man obtains a new species of pleasure in addition to those pleasurable sensations which he derives from himself whereby he greatly increases the scope of enjoyment perhaps he has already taken too many of the pleasures of this sphere from animals which visibly feel pleasure when they play with each other especially the mother with her young then consider the sexual relations which make almost every female interesting to a male with regard to pleasure and vice versa the feeling of pleasure on the basis of human relations generally makes man better. Joy in common, pleasure enjoyed together, is increased. It gives the individual security, makes him good tempered, and dispels mistrust and envy, for we feel ourselves at ease and see others at ease. Similar manifestations of pleasure awaken the idea of the same sensations, the feeling of being like something. A like effect is produced by common sufferings, the same bad weather, dangers, enemies. Upon this foundation is based the oldest alliance, the object of which is the mutual obviating and averting of a threatening danger for the benefit of each individual, and thus the social instinct grows at a pleasure. 99. The Innocent Side of So-Called Evil Actions All evil actions are prompted by the instinct of preservation, or, more exactly, by the desire for pleasure and the avoidance of pain on the part of the individual thus prompted but not evil to cause pain per se does not exist except in the brains of philosophers neither does to give pleasure per se pity in schopenhauer's meaning in the social condition before the state we kill the creature be it ape or man who tries to take from us the fruit of a tree when we are hungry and approach the tree as we should still do with animals in inhospitable countries the evil actions which now most rouse our indignation are based upon the error that he who causes them has a free will that he had the option therefore of not doing us this injury this belief in option arouses hatred desire for revenge spite and the deterioration of the whole imagination while we are much less angry with an animal because we consider it irresponsible to do injury not from the instinct of preservation but as requital Is the consequence of a false judgment and therefore equally innocent. The individual can in the condition which lies before the state, act sternly and cruelly towards other creatures for the purpose of terrifying, to establish his existence firmly by such terrifying proofs of his power. Thus act the violent, the mighty, the original founders of states, who subdue the weaker to themselves. They have the right to do so, such as the state still takes for itself, or rather there is no right that can hinder this the ground for all morality can only be made ready when a stronger individual or a collective individual for instance society or the state subdues the single individuals draws them out of their singleness and forms them into an association compulsion precedes morality indeed morality itself is compulsion for a time to which one submits for the avoidance of pain later on it becomes custom later still, free obedience, and finally, almost instinct. Then, like everything long accustomed and natural, it is connected with pleasure, and is henceforth called virtue. 100. Shame Shame exists everywhere where there is a mystery. This, however, is a religious idea, which was widely extended in the older times of human civilization. Everywhere were found bounded domains to which access was forbidden by divine right, except under certain conditions at first locally as for example certain spots that ought not to be trodden by the feet or the uninitiated in the neighbourhood of which these latter experienced horror and fear this feeling was a good deal carried over into other relations for instance the sex relations which as a privilege and a doiton of riper years had to be withheld from the knowledge of the young for their advantage relations for the protection and sanctification of which many gods were invented and were set up as guardians in the nuptial chamber in turkish this room is on this account called harem sanctuary and is distinguished with the same name therefore that is used for the entrance courts of the mosques thus the kingdom is as a centre from which radiate power and glory To the subjects a mystery full of secrecy and shame, of which many after-effects may still be felt among nations which otherwise do not by any means belong to the bashful type. Similarly, the whole world of inner conditions, the so-called soul, is still a mystery for all who are not philosophers, after it has been looked upon for endless ages as a divine origin and as worthy of divine intercourse. According to this it is an adoitan and rouses shame. One o one judge not in considering earlier periods care must be taken not to fall into unjust abuse the injustice in slavery the cruelty in the suppression of persons and nations is not to be measured by our standard for the instinct of justice was not then so far developed who dares to reproach the genovese calvin with the burning of the physician's servant it was an action following and resulting from his convictions and in the same way the inquisition had a good right only the ruling views were false and produced a result which seemed hard to us because those views had now grown strange to us because what is the burning of a single individual compared with the eternal pains of hell for almost all and yet this idea was universal at the time without essentially injuring by its dreadfulness the conception of a god with us too political sectarians are hardly and cruelly treated but because one is accustomed to believe in the necessity of the state the cruelty is not so deeply felt here as it is when we repudiate the views cruelty to animals and children and italians is due to ignorance i e the animal through the interests of church teaching has been placed too far behind man much that is dreadful and inhuman in history much that one hardly likes to believe is mitigated by the reflection that the one who commands and the one who carries out are different persons the former does not behold the right and therefore does not experience the strong impression on the imagination the latter obeys the superior and therefore feels no responsibility most princes and military heads through lack of imagination easily appear hard and cruel without really being so egoism is not evil because the idea of the neighbor the word is of christian origin and does not represent the truth is very weak in us and we feel ourselves almost as free and irresponsible towards him as towards plants and stones we have yet to learn that others suffer And this can never be completely learnt. 102. Man always acts rightly. We do not complain of nature as immoral because it sends a thunderstorm and makes us wet. Why do we call those who injure us immoral? Because in the latter case we take for granted a free will functioning voluntarily. In the former we see necessity. But this distinction is an error thus we do not call even intentional injury immoral in all circumstances for instance we kill a fly unhesitatingly and intentionally only because its buzzing annoys us we punish a criminal intentionally and hurt him in order to protect ourselves and society in the first case it is the individual who in order to preserve himself or even to protect himself from worry does intentional injury in the second case it is the state All morals allow intentional injury in the case of necessity, that is, when it is a matter of self-preservation. But these two points of view suffice to explain all evil actions committed by men against men. We are desirous of obtaining pleasure or avoiding pain. In any case, it is always a question of self-preservation. Socrates and Plato are right. Whatever man does, he always does well, that is, he does that which seems to him good, useful, according to the degree of his intellect the particular standard of his reasonableness 103 the harmlessness of malice the aim of malice is not the suffering of others in itself but our own enjoyment for instance as the feeling of revenge or stronger nervous excitement all teasing even shows the pleasure it gives to exercise our power on others and bring it to an enjoyable feeling of preponderance is it immoral to taste pleasure at the expense of another's pain? Is malicious joy? Footnote. This is the untranslatable word schadenfreude, which means joy at the misfortune of others. J.M.K. End footnote, Devilish, as Schopenhauer says. We give ourselves pleasure in nature by breaking off twigs, loosening stones, fighting with wild animals, and do this in order to become thereby conscious of our strength is the knowledge therefore that another suffers through us the same thing concerning which we otherwise feel irresponsible supposed to make us immoral but if we did not know this would we not thereby have the enjoyment of our own superiority which can only manifest itself by the suffering of others for instance in teasing all pleasure per se is neither good nor evil whence should come the decision that in order to have pleasure ourselves we may not cause displeasure to others from the point of view of usefulness alone that is out of consideration for the consequences for possible displeasure when the injured one or the replacing state gives the expectation of resentment and revenge this only can have been the original reason for denying ourselves such actions pity aims just as little at the pleasure of others as malice at the pain of others per se for it contains at least two, perhaps many more, elements of a personal nature, and is so far self-gratification, in the first place as the pleasure of emotion, which is the kind of pity that exists in tragedy, and then, when it impels to action, as the pleasure of satisfaction in the exercise of power. If, besides this, a suffering person is very dear to us, we lift the sorrow from ourselves by the exercise of sympathetic actions, Except by a few philosophers, pity has always been placed very low in the scale of moral feelings, and rightly so. 104. Self-Defense If self-defense is allowed to pass as moral, then almost all manifestations of the so-called immoral egoism must also stand. Men injure, rob, or kill in order to preserve or defend themselves to prevent personal injury they lie where cunning and dissimulation are the right means of self-preservation intentional injury when our existence or safety preservation of our comfort is concerned is conceded to be moral the state itself injures according to this point of view when it punishes in unintentional injury of course there can be nothing immoral that is ruled by chance is there then a kind of intentional injury where existence or the preservation of our comfort is not concerned is there an injuring out of pure malice for instance in cruelty if one does not know how much an action hurts it is no deed of malice thus the child is not malicious towards the animal not evil he examines and destroys it like a toy but do we ever know entirely how an action hurts another as far as our nervous system extends we protect ourselves from pain if it extended farther to our fellow man namely we should do no one an injury except in such cases as we injure ourselves where we cut ourselves for the sake of cure tire and exert ourselves for the sake of health we conclude by analogy that something hurts somebody and through memory and the strength of imagination we may suffer from it ourselves but still what a difference there is between toothache and the pain pity that the sight of toothache calls forth therefore in injury out of so-called malice the degree of pain produced is always unknown to us but inasmuch as there is pleasure in the action the feeling of one's own power one's own strong excitement the action is committed in order to preserve the comfort of the individual and is regarded therefore from a similar point of view as defence and falsehood and necessity no life without pleasure the struggle for pleasure is the struggle for life whether the individual so fights this fight that men call him good or so that they can call him evil is determined by the measure and the constitution of his intellect One o five, recompensing justice Whoever has completely comprehended the doctrine of absolute irresponsibility can no longer include the so-called punishing and recompensing justice in the idea of justice, should this consist of giving to each man his due. For he who is punished does not deserve the punishment. He is only used as a means of henceforth warning away from certain actions. Equally so, he who is rewarded does not merit this reward. He cannot act otherwise than he did. Therefore, The reward is meant only as an encouragement to him and others, to provide a motive for subsequent actions. Words of praise are flung to the runners of the course, not the one who has reached the goal. Neither punishment nor reward is anything that comes to one as one's own. They are given from motives of usefulness without one having a right to claim them. Hence we must say, the wise man gives no reward because the deed has been well done. Just as we have said, the wise man does not punish because evil has been committed but in order that evil shall not be committed if punishment and reward no longer existed then the strongest motives which deter men from certain actions and impel them to certain other actions would also no longer exist the needs of mankind require their continuance and inasmuch as punishment and reward blame and praise work most sensibly on vanity the same need requires the continuance of vanity 106. At the waterfall. In looking at a waterfall, we imagine that there is freedom of will and fancy in the countless turnings, twistings, and breaking of the waves. But everything is compulsory. Every movement can be mathematically calculated. So it is also with human actions. One would have to be able to calculate every single action beforehand if one were all-knowing, equally so all progress of knowledge every error all malice the one who acts certainly labors under the illusion of voluntariness if the world's wheels were to stand still for a moment and an all-knowing calculating reason were there to make use of this pause it could foretell the future of every creature to the remotest times and mark out every track upon which that wheel would continue to roll the delusion of the acting agent about himself the supposition of a free will belongs to this mechanism which still remains to be calculated One o seven, irresponsibility and innocence the complete irresponsibility of man for his actions and his nature is the bitterest drop which he who understands must swallow if he was accustomed to see the patent of nobility of his humanity in responsibility and duty All his valuations, distinctions, disinclinations, are thereby deprived of value and become false. His deepest feeling for the sufferer and the hero was based on an error. He may no longer either praise or blame, for it is absurd to praise and blame nature and necessity. In the same way as he loves a fine work of art, but does not praise it, because it can do nothing for itself. In the same way he regards plants, so must he regard his own actions and those of mankind he can admire strength beauty abundance in themselves but must find no merit therein the chemical progress and the strife of the elements the torments of the sick person who thirsts after recovery are all equally as little merits as those struggles of the soul and states of distress in which we are all torn hither and thither by different impulses until we finally decide for the strongest as we say but in reality it is the strongest motive which decides for us all these motives however whatever fine names we may give them have all grown out of the same root in which we believe the evil poisons to be situated between good and evil actions there is no difference of species but at most of degree good actions are sublimated evil ones evil actions are vulgarized and stupefied good ones the single longing of the individual for self-gratification together with the fear of losing it satisfies itself in all circumstances man may act as he can that is as he must but it in deeds of vanity revenge pleasure usefulness malice cunning be it in deeds of sacrifice of pity of knowledge the degrees of the power of judgment determine whither any one lets himself be drawn through this longing to every society to every individual a scale of possessions is continually present according to which he determines his actions and judges those of others but this standard changes constantly many actions are called evil and are only stupid because the degree of intelligence which decided for them was very low in a certain sense even all actions are still stupid for the highest degree of human intelligence which can now be attained will assuredly be yet surpassed and then in a retrospect all our actions and judgments will appear as limited and hasty as the actions and judgments of primitive wild peoples now appear limited and hasty to us to recognize all this may be deeply painful but consolation comes after such pains are the pangs of birth the butterfly wants to break through its chrysalis it renders and tears it and is then blinded and confused by the unaccustomed light the kingdom of liberty in such people as are capable of such sadness and how few are The first experiment made is to see whether mankind can change itself from a moral into a wise mankind. The sun of a new gospel throws its rays upon the highest point in the soul of each single individual. Then the mists gather thicker than ever, and the brightest light and the dreariest shadow lie side by side. Everything is necessity, so says the new knowledge, and this knowledge itself is necessity. Everything is innocence, and knowledge is the road to insight into this innocence. Are pleasure, egoism, vanity necessary for the production of the moral phenomena and their highest result, the sense for truth and justice and knowledge were error and the confusion of the imagination the only means through which mankind could raise itself gradually to this degree of self-enlightenment and self-liberation, who would dare to undervalue these means? Who would dare to be sad if he perceived the goal to which those roads led? Everything in the domain of morality has evolved is changeable, unstable everything is dissolved it is true but everything is also streaming towards one goal even if the inherited habit of erroneous valuation love and hatred continue to reign in us yet under the influence of growing knowledge it will become weaker a new habit that of comprehension of not loving not hating of overlooking is gradually implanting itself in us upon the same ground and in thousands of years will perhaps be powerful enough to give humanity the strength to produce wise innocent consciously innocent men as it now produces unwise guilt-conscious men that is the necessary preliminary step not its opposite end of second division the history of the moral sentiments